Let's pray together. Father, this truth is not something that we come to on our own. And yet, we desperately need, we need your son Jesus to be our deliverer, our rescuer, our strong tower, our safe place. We need every word that your word speaks about him to be true. And we confess as best we know how, Lord, we trust it to be true. So would you now take these words that we have sung and heard and that have been declared, would you take your word as we turn our hearts and our minds' attentions to it, would you do a work of faith in us, cause us to believe, to rest, to hold on to these truths in ways that transform us? We need you to speak now and to change us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen. To start with today, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After we read uh, this section that you'll find in the notes, but also on the screen, I turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 because we will be looking at some of the verses that follow this. If this is God's Word in 1 Corinthians 15, let's read it together. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you unless you believed for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. This is God's Word. Well, do you remember what it was that was shared about Jesus when you first heard about him? I know for some of you that was quite a while back, and that's okay, but think back. What was it that was shared about Jesus when you first heard his story? Uh, throughout the years, there's been lots of ways to kind of summarize uh, what it is that the message of the gospel or the good news of Jesus is all about and I, I've collected some of these from time to time. Uh, this is a way that the message of the gospel was shared in the Philippines in the 1950s. It's a record player, and without electricity, uh, but merely a pencil and a little bit of elbow grease, uh, you can turn this record and it will share the story of the gospel of John uh, in the language that was indigenous to the folks that the missionaries were trying to reach. A more modern example comes out of uh, Japan, uh, where Christians have used uh, this, it's called a manga. Uh, it's basically a graphic novel of the story of Jesus to tell about who he is and what he did and uh, why he matters. 
Uh, some of you might remember uh, some of these things. Uh, tracks is what they were often called. Uh, this one is of the, the bridge to life. And some of you will remember the illustration of a man on one side and God on the other and this great chasm in between, but only the cross of Christ could bridge that chasm. For me, though, it wasn't any of these. It was, well, something like, like this. Uh, it was uh, called the, the wordless book uh, when, uh, when I was a kid in the, in the 80s. I know for some of you that was a long time ago, but um, for others of you, you think, oh, wow, he's just a kid. And yes, both are the case, both are the case. But this was a way to tell the story of Jesus without any, any specific words. It was to say that uh, God is uh, in heaven and he is holy and pure, uh, that sin enters our lives and that creates a darkness and a separation uh, between us and God. But God in his mercy provides his son Jesus as a sacrifice in our place and his blood covers our sins. And for those who would uh, would trust Jesus to be enough, to be sufficient for their sins to be forgiven, uh, God would wash them white as snow and uh, cleanse them, uh, making it such that their sins were removed and forgotten. And then they were invited, Christians, uh, those who believed, were invited to experience a life growing like grass grows. Uh, this is a, a very common way to, uh, to tell the story of Jesus, and there's lots of them. And if you kind of summarized or looked at all of these different ways, what you'll find is uh, some pretty clear uh, themes that emerge. You're going you're gonna to hear about a God uh, who uh, has, a, has, has a good plan for this world. You're going to hear about humanity in its sin. And you're going to hear about Jesus and his power on the cross to forgive and to cleanse sins. And you're going to hear the call for those of us who would hear this word about Jesus to, to believe him, to hold on to him. But you know what often gets neglected in these presentations of Jesus? It's the resurrection of Jesus. You know, I even looked back at uh, one of these, the Steps to Peace with God, or maybe you might know this as the Four Spiritual Laws, and, uh, which was a very common one for a long time. And all of these components that I just listed were there. And, and the resurrection of Jesus is talked about as one sub-bullet point. It's almost like in so many of these presentations that have been used that the story is about this Jesus who comes and he lives and he dies in our place for our sins. And then we move on to say, and we need to follow him and trust him, but oh yeah, because we have to remind people that he's not still dead on the cross or dead in the grave, that he did rise from the dead, but really you need to trust him and to follow him. So many of the presentations of this summary of the good news of Jesus sort of skip past what's a pretty important part, right? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. When you look at the New Testament and you see the proclamation of Jesus that emerges in Acts and throughout the New Testament, you're going to see that they don't ever forget to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, that they always remember to incorporate that that guy who died on the cross didn't stay there, but he rose from the dead and that there was something happening in his resurrection that none of us could afford to miss. That something happened that day when he rose from the dead that would require our attention. 
But so often in the course of Christian history, Christians have rightly focused on the cross, but have neglected what is a far more significant aspect of this story, that Jesus didn't merely die on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead for our life. But the good news is that we're not the first ones to have to think more carefully about the resurrection. We've been studying 1 Corinthians, and it's a story of a conflicted and troubled church, and the man who wrote to these people, he was the one who first taught them about Jesus. So he's the one who, who shared the, the wordless book or whatever it was that he initially shared with them, but he finds himself, as he writes this letter, needing to spend some more time on one key teaching about Jesus. And you know what that teaching is? The resurrection. So it's not just us who might have a tendency to neglect this. It even happened back then. But over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is to listen to the Apostle Paul instruct his church to help them understand why the resurrection of Jesus is not just about getting Jesus off the cross so that the story can go on, but is at the very foundation of Christian faith. And today we're just going to look at a first few, a few gifts that the resurrection provides for us as Paul opens up this particular section in 1 Corinthians 15. So with that long introduction, are you ready? Okay, mostly over here, we're ready. Uh, I feel like, um, well, like my desk in my office. I've got stuff cluttered everywhere. So I'm going to try to move some things out of the way, and we're going to get to what's most important. Okay, let's look here at God's Word. And I want you to be listening for what are these gifts that the resurrection provides? What are these gifts that the resurrection provides? Look at verse 1 again. The Apostle Paul writes and says, Now, brothers... I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believed for no purpose. Now, we're going to pause right there because there's, there's two gifts that I want you to, uh, to be able to see in the text of these first two verses that are perhaps the most important and foundational ones for each of us in our relationship with Jesus. In my translation, it says, I want to clarify for you. Some of you might have a translation that says, I want to remind you. It's kind of an interesting construction in Greek because the Greek word literally just means, I want to make known to you the gospel I proclaimed. Now, the reason why we translate it differently is because Paul had already made known the gospel to them, right? He'd already preached to them and taught them. He'd spent much time with them. And so it's not like they'd never heard this before. What the Apostle Paul is pointing to here is that he finds it necessary to go back over this truth so that they can understand it more thoroughly, more carefully. They needed to be able to see with clear vision to clarify what the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was all about. And remember their context. They were a church desperately in need of some clear vision. 
Uh, these were a people who were deeply divided. They were fighting over all kinds of issues. Uh, they were confused about the nature of Christian faith and what it meant to follow Jesus and how to do that in their life and their culture. So out of this context of conflict and confusion, uh, Paul comes to the end here and he says, look, I need to help you see clearly. And he focuses them on this one truth, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus at the heart of this gospel. Now that's the, the first gift that the resurrection helps to provide for us. It helps to provide clear vision. Because it's not just this church, the church in Corinth, that, that needs a clear place to focus in the midst of confusion and conflict. It's all of us. Anybody ever walked through a season where you just really weren't sure what God was doing in your life? Anybody ever walked through a season where pain and sorrow and grief just seemed to overwhelm and you weren't even sure what tomorrow would hold? You weren't sure if you could even make it to tomorrow. Anybody ever walked through a season where, uh, where life just seemed to be happening so fast that uh, your, your feet just were spinning and you just couldn't quite find a place to, to rest? The truth is, all of us walk through seasons where, like the story of Peter, when he walked out on the water with Jesus and he saw Jesus out there in front of him, and, and he's walking on the water, which is a miracle in and of itself, but he's doing it in the midst of a storm, and suddenly, Peter, instead of keeping his eyes on Jesus and focusing on him, Peter begins to look around and realize, oh, wow, I'm in a storm, and I'm on the water in the storm and not in the boat where there used to be some safety. What am I doing out here? And do you remember what happened to Peter at that point? You can say it. He sank. He sank in the water. He got distracted by the confusion and the conflict and the fear and everything around him. And all that he needed in the midst of that was one clear place to focus. So what, what Paul teaches this church and what I think God is, is saying to us through his word here is that when you're in the midst of the confusion and the conflict and the chaos... The solution is not merely to just kind of escape. It's not to just kind of find a way to numb the pain. It's not to occupy your mind with social media or with shopping or with video games or with the paper or getting all into what's happening on the political scene. No, these are all ways to escape the conflict and the chaos and the confusion, but these things will not be a source of strength for you. They may help you to forget about the chaos for a while, but ultimately, you're going to come back to it, and you're going to need something that gives you more than an escape, that gives you a refuge. And what the resurrection of Jesus does for those who cling to him in faith is that it gives us that kind of a refuge, that kind of a, a clear point in history in our lives that no matter what else is happening, we can look there and know this is true and certain and I can build my life on this. That's what the resurrection is supposed to 
provide for us. It's supposed to provide for us that kind of clarity so that no matter what we're facing, we know, we know what is most important. This is what the resurrection is all about. And I, and I feel like I need to, to just show this to you in one more way. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to John chapter 2, because I want you to hear what the Gospel of John says about the resurrection of Jesus. What's at stake in it for all of us? This is John chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 18. Jesus is in a conflict with some religious leaders of his day, and they're trying to, uh, to pin him down to say, Jesus, why do you think you have the authority to do what you are doing? And that's where we jump into the story. John chapter 2, verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days? But look at verse 21. This is the important part that we've got to hang on to and remember and focus our minds and hearts on. But he, that is Jesus, was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and statement Jesus had made. What is at stake in the resurrection? What's at stake in the resurrection of Jesus is proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. It is proof that he has authority to forgive your sins. You know what? The cross is only part of the equation for us. We don't just need a substitute. We need a substitute who has the authority to say, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Where does Jesus get that authority? Well, he is God's son. And the proof of that authority is that he said, go ahead and kill me. And three days later, I will be raised to life again. Do you know why the resurrection matters? Because it means that right now, Right now, there is a risen Jesus reigning and ruling over all of this universe. Right now. He's not waiting to rule until he comes back again. He's ruling right now. And when he comes back, he comes back as judge to sift out those who have trusted and obeyed him and those who have ignored his authority, not merely his offer for forgiveness, which means that for each of us, the resurrection 
drives us to a clear place where we know on the one hand that there is a comfort and a safety and a refuge that nothing in this world can take from us. And we know on the other hand that there is a leader and a king and a judge to whom we must all give account. Jesus is alive and ruling today. And so it ought to change everything about our lives. There's no place for despair to rule in the heart of a resurrection believer. There's no place for sin and willful disobedience and to ignore the teaching of Jesus. There's no place for that in the heart of a resurrection believer. There's no place for fear and worry in the heart of a resurrection believer because Jesus is on his throne, ruling and reigning. The first gift that the resurrection gives us is clear vision. And that's why Paul points to next to say that it also gives us a confident confession. I'm going to have to move fast with these next few points, but I don't want you to miss them. Verses 3 through 5 that we read already likely were what early Christians would say when they were baptized. As they went into those baptism waters, they were asked to speak these words. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared. This wasn't done in secret and in silence. This is an early confession of faith. And, and here's what it's doing. It's not merely just kind of summarizing the truth of Christianity. In the same way that these tools will summarize the truth of Christianity, but yet push for more, the, this confession that Christ died and was buried and that he rose from the dead and that he appeared, this is doing more than just giving a, a summary of Christian faith. It's, it's operating as, as an oath of loyalty. It, it's kind of like when a man and a woman will stand up here on their wedding day and the, the pastor, myself, or someone else will, uh, will say, do you uh, promise to love, honor, and cherish until death do you part? And then each of them are expected to say, I do. Well, I'm glad you've been to a wedding. That's, uh, that's good. That's good. When, when a groom says, I do, he's not merely offering some kind of intellectual assent that I'm about to get married. He's not just saying, I understand uh, that I'm being married now and that my uh, legal status is going to change. No, he's, he's doing more than just kind of acknowledging that, uh, that, that his legal status will change, his relationship status will change. He is also promising. He is, he is promising to redirect the course of his life and how he handles himself and how he manages his schedule and his money and everything in relationship now to this lady who he is joining himself to in marriage. 
Both of them, man and woman, are, are not merely giving intellectual assent to this idea. They are making an oath with their words to reorder all of their life in relationship to this person. Well, the baptism confession that we make is in a similar kind of a way an, an oath of allegiance to Jesus. It summarizes the truth about him. And, we, and so we ask people, do you, do you believe that Jesus has died and has been the full price for your sins? Has he fully paid for your sins? And they will answer, yes. But then we ask them the second question. Do you promise to follow him as your Lord and Savior for the rest of your life? What we're saying there is he's alive today and every day. And from this day forward, everything in my life has to be judged against my relationship with him. That's what's happening when someone confesses Jesus in their baptism. And that's what Paul points them to. He's reminding them about the, the substance of their confession. And he says, if, if this is not true, then maybe, as you see there in verse 2, maybe you believed for no purpose. What he is suggesting is that it is possible. It's, it's possible to sort of confess Jesus and believe in him the way that we might believe that the earth rotates around the sun. It's a, an idea that um, we can say is true, but frankly, it doesn't really impact how we live unless it stops happening, and then we fly off into space. But for the most part, we just kind of go on as if we were right before we knew that, uh, that truth. It's possible to sort of confess Jesus in a way that is merely happening in your mind. It's an intellectual assent. But that's not the kind of confession that is saving faith in Jesus. It's also possible to, to have an experience with Jesus, to have an, an, an emotional turning point, and to, to build up your idea of, of what it means to be in relationship with him based on these kind of emotional moments and experiences and to constantly be trying to recreate them. But that's not the confession either. You, you see, the, the confession is both mind and heart. But more importantly, it is an act of our will. That's what, happening, that's what happens when a man promises to give his life to a woman in marriage. It's not just something in his head or in his heart, his feelings. He is choosing to say from this day forward, I'll be different. And the resurrection calls us to that kind of a confident confession such that we would reorder everything in life around this new relationship with the risen Jesus. And that kind of confession, when, when you don't just know about Jesus in your head and you haven't just sort of experienced something emotionally in your heart, but when your head and your heart lead to a choice of your will to say, I will follow him no matter what, then, then you've experienced the kind of saving faith in Jesus 
That is what makes up Christianity. That is what Christianity is all about. It's not merely teachings, not just truth about him. Nor is it feelings for him, merely feelings for him. It is truth and emotion that is driven by an act of our will to say, Jesus, I will trust you. Jesus, I will follow you. Jesus, I will be yours no matter what. If you have not made that kind of a confession, then today, that's what you need to do. You need to take your mind and your heart and let your will say yes to him. Because that's what a saving faith in Jesus really looks like. And that's what's being confessed by these Christians and by all Christians. And it is that kind of confession that leads to, well, this third gift of the resurrection. It is personal transformation. And I'm not going to talk all about this, but you just, you'll see it here. Paul talks about his personal transformation. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not ineffective. When you have a kind of confession like we just talked about, it will lead to a personal transformation. And you will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, his grace towards me has not been ineffective. You'll have a story. But for our last few minutes, I want us to turn our attention to this last gift that the resurrection provides. Because this one now has implications for all of us as a as a family of faith, as a, as a specific church trying to figure out how to follow Jesus together. Because the resurrection, while it has implications for each of us individually, it also has implications for us corporately. So look at verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, whether it is I or they, and he's talking about himself or the other apostles, Peter and James and John. So we proclaim, and so you have believed. The resurrection has personal implications, but it also has corporate ones. Because what was going to unite this divided church, a church divided and conflicted in all kinds of ways, was not going to be an individual issue as Paul has dealt with so many of them. What was going to unite this divided church was the confident confession of Jesus as the resurrected Messiah and the clear understanding of the united mission that a resurrected Jesus sends his people on. What would unite them? to know and follow Jesus and to make him known all across their world. 
What unites our church? It's the same thing. It is to know and follow Jesus and to make him known across our city, across this region, around this world. If, if that is not the unifying mission of our church, then I don't really know what else there is to offer. We're too diverse. We come from too many different backgrounds. We've got too many opinions to find anything else that could ever unite us. But this united mission can, and it will, because it has united Christians from the very beginning. And so Paul could say, whether it's me who proclaims or it's Peter, it doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus gets proclaimed in this world. So what matters to you? We're walking through a transition, as you all know. Next week, we start a new schedule with new times in our worship services. Everybody's changing time, so we might as well change too, right? <laughs> so we'll have two services that start next week, one at 8 o'clock and one at 10.30. Last week, if you were here, I asked you to be praying, to consider where is it that God would, would lead you to commit, not just in terms of what time you attend worship, but to whom God would lead you to proclaim this message of the good news of Jesus, to invite, to become part of this family of faith. You see, I want you to choose a, a time that you come to worship based on mission, based on where you can be most effective for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so as we wrap up today, I just, I'm going to give you a chance to, to make a demonstration of that kind of a commitment. I've asked you to consider committing to, uh, to identify five people to pray for and to invite and to identify which of these worship services you can be most effective at for the sake of the kingdom. And now I know that today, some of you, like me, are thinking, well, I'm not even sure what five people to put on my list. That's okay. I I'm there too. I've got two right now on my list. But here's what I want to ask you to do. If that's you, if you're not sure uh, which five people the Lord might call you to, to proclaim to, to, uh, to invite, to be a part of what Jesus is doing in your life and in the lives of others, then, then just today, would you commit to pray and ask God to show you who to put on your list? And when he does, put them on there and be ready to take action that he, he leads you to. Some of you might say, well, I'm not sure which worship service I want to, uh, to end up in. I'm not really sure yet. That's okay, too. I know that there's uh, lots of questions and uh, what's it going to look like and uh, what's all the dynamics going to be. That's fine. If you're not yet ready to choose one or the other, uh, that's fine. Leave it blank for now. But I want you to be praying. Father, where can I be most effective? And when you know, mark it down and commit to be a part of the life and dynamic of that experience. And I'll just encourage you, if you don't know, come at 10.30. We're going to use everything that God's given us at 10.30. And so come, 
Be a part of what's happening. And some of you already know. You know exactly where you're supposed to be. And you know who it is that that, uh, you're to pray for. Well, praise God. Today, I just want to ask, would you pray for others to experience that kind of clarity that God has given you? And here's the action that I want to invite you to take. As we sing this last song, and if, if you're ready to commit to these kinds of things, just tear off the card, and if you would, come to one of these boards over here. You'll find that some folks already have. Take out one of the tacks and just stick it on there. If you're in the balcony, there's one right up there behind you in, in the back. I want you to have an opportunity to say, I'm, I'm in. I understand that there's a reason why God has called me here and that there are people who need to know Jesus because of me. And if you would commit to pray for them, to invite them, and as we sing this last song, would you just come, stick your card on the, on the board. Let's stand together now. And I'm going to pray as we enter into this time of response. Father, we recognize that what you're doing and accomplishing is far bigger than any of us. And we can't grasp all of that. We can't understand it all. It's, it's too much for us. And so I just ask that today, would you just bring a clarity and a peace to our hearts to know what next step we each need to take. We know that we don't know all of the steps that will come, but today I just ask, Lord, would you bring your clarity into our hearts and minds so that we would know what one step to take. Don't let us leave here unaffected by this powerful proclamation of Jesus that this whole morning has been about. Would you reorder our lives as we say, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. We pray this in his name. Amen.